Welcome to The Coffee Break, a podcast where we talk about the business of networking. How are you today, Andrew? I'm good, Greg. How are you? I'm doing okay. Been a busy-ish week. I've churned out a lot of words for different stuff, and I'm starting to feel that there's little bloody stumps on the tip of my fingers. <laughs> <laughs> and you being in the UK don't get the 4th of July off, so there's no relief in sight for you. I don't believe I've had a public holiday in quite some time because I'm a freelance I only get paid when I do something instead of just for the privilege of sitting around at someone else's expense during the day. <laughs> <laughs> I could be so lucky. That's right. Well, as someone who does get paid by someone else's expenses to sit around all day, I'm looking forward to the fourth. You are? Okay. Well, that must be fun. I should I should work out how to do that, really. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this freelance thing is really not a good idea. <laughs> Or maybe not. Who knows? Well, let's uh, let's go straight into the news this week. Uh, I don't know if you saw that uh, Google and Arista and a bunch of other similarly uh, institutions have developed a 25 gig Ethernet consortium in an attempt to say, why are we bothering with 40 and 100 gig? Have you? What do you think about that? Um, so this is outside of the standard Ethernet group that, that develops the, the 10, the 40, the 100? Yeah, well, you've got to remember that there's an awful lot of Ethernet standards that are outside of the IEEE. So normally the IEEE would make Ethernet standards. They would sit around and consider their belly button fluff and check the size of their shirt, you know, all that sort of stuff. And mm -hmm. generally take about 10 years to decide to initiate a standard and another 10 years to ship it. The problem being is that uh, 40 gig Ethernet and 100 gig Ethernet is actually enormously expensive and not well suited for use inside the data center. Uh, the IEEE fundamentally is a busted up, you know, what I'm like about standards bodies, but the IEEE is probably the most broken one in networking that we've got. And in fact, it's so good at what it does, sarcasm, that we actually have the Metro Ethernet forum to define an awful lot of other standards that the IEEE can't be bothered doing. Mm -hmm. So uh, do you find a use case for 25 gigs? Yeah, so it's very low cost. The point here is that we need more than 10, and the way that we're working it is that this is, would be a very low cost and probably short haul is what I understand. Mm -hmm. um, there's not too much information. If you go to the link, which is 25gethernet.org, it doesn't say too much about what we're doing with it, but it just says it. So if I can make some wild guesses, Please do. Uh, so the thing about um, the 25 gig Ethernet thing was um, originally one of the standards that the IEEE discarded. I don't remember the exact reasons why, but the point is that today's 10 gigabit Ethernet is actually 4 by 2.5 gig lanes together. Mm -hmm. So if you actually think of a 10 gig Ethernet circuit as being 2.5 gigs one from one side to the other, right? Yep. And so 4 times 2.5, and then in the SFP there's actually a little chip that actually does the muxing of those four channels together in the uh -huh. SFP interface. So 4 by 2.5 is 10 gig. There's an encoding over the top, so it's actually 12 and 12 gig or something like that. You don't see that because you can't drive 10 gigs of data through it. That's how it works. And so what the IEEE in their infinite wisdom, or not as the case may be, usually it's a stupid thing in the IEEE, like somebody still wants to hang on to the 100 meter, 300 foot rule, uh -huh. which nobody else cares about but them. Uh, have said, uh, we, if we're going to do 40 gig, what we'll do is we'll use 4 by 10 gig lanes. So we step up the clock rate from 2.5 gigs per lane to 10 gigs, and then we bond 4 by 10 gig channels together. And, of course, 100 gig is 10 by 10 channels. 
So you, all you have to do now is make a chip that does 10 gig Ethernet, and then you type four of them to 40 gig and 10 of them for 100 gig. And then there's future generation of 100 gig standards that will collapse this down to something else. Uh -huh. So if you've got a chip that's already doing 2.5 gigabits per second, and you've got four of them making 10, why don't you just overclock that chip up by 10 times and go to 25 gig? So if you could say it's 2.5 gig, if I could clock it up to 25 just by increasing the clock rate, well, that'd be cheaper. And I don't have to drive it through the distance. That would be my guess. Mm -hmm. So is this uh, effort, you know, Part of the broader trend that we're seeing, like with you know Facebook coming out with its own switch and its own switch operating system and Cumulus and the like, is this part yeah, of that? Yeah, it is very much so. I would say, my guess is that um, I remember when the 40 gig and 100 gig standards were ratified, and everybody complained that they were the dumb things to do because they were expensive to implement. They required expensive silicon and. They were going to be hard to manufacture, but that was what the standard did. And the standards body sort of went, hey, we did what was best for everybody and, you know, screw the vendors. And I think what we're seeing here is people saying, look, what's most important? If I look at these people, Google, Mellanox, Microsoft, Arista and Broadcom, well, Arista looks like it would be leading this effort. And they have a good point to make, which is the people who want 40 gig and 100 gig are in the Metro Ethernet and they want long haul, high powered, blah, blah, blah. We just want something that goes top of rack. 10 gigs, not enough. 25 gigs would be good. So if we can make a cheap 25 gig or a cheap 50 gig, then that's what we need. So why not do that? And I imagine if we could get a hold of somebody from Arista, they'd probably tell us exactly why. So maybe we should do that. Yeah, maybe we should. I know. They're just the person. We'll see if we can organize that. <laughs> um, again, it's just a testimony to the differences, how far we can stretch Ethernet in about five different, you know, 25 dimensions. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that, that makes a lot of sense that there would be a, a fairly robust market for um, huh. a switch that could operate between the 10 and the 40. Yes, for high-density cloud-scale data centers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's important to think of, like, today, if you're building 4 by 10 gigs to each server, so 10 gigs is not enough if you're a Facebook or a Google, you might want more than 10, but 25 is faster than the current PCI buses. So a nice low-cost Ethernet, and then just have 2 by 25 gigs going up to the switch. That would be lovely, I would think. Sure. Um, combine that with the rumored... Uh, I heard some rumors this week that the next-generation Broadcom chip, the FE3200, which is the backplane chip, faces down, is about to go into final testing, and that will do 7.2 7 terabits per second per slot, which is 32 by 100 gig ports per slot. Mm -hmm. So we're set to have high density 100 gig sometime in early 2016. Maybe we could start to use these for 48 ports of 25 gig. Maybe. Maybe, or 96 per slot, and that would really change the way some of our network designs would look. Yep. That said, good to see. Good to see that people can ignore the standards bodies and get some results instead of waiting for these hoary old men to get something nothing done. <laughs> well, it does seem like, you know, there's been an unlocking of innovation by organizations that say, hey, we, our needs aren't being met by the general market. Let's go out and see what we can do. Yes, and they can move faster. And I think in this case, the organizations at play exceed the capacity of the IEEE. So instead of it being an afterthought, it's actually being proactively driven. Sure. Let's see how it goes. Uh, I think the big cloud providers have the ability to draw the market with them. They absolutely do. They absolutely do. 
Vendors push cloud offerings to offset PBX declines. My favorite, least favorite topic. Let me just be clear. <laughs> Enterprise IP telephony. I'm very pleased to announce that revenues declined 10% sequentially, according to Deloro. This is becoming a consistent message, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, the market is continuing to shrink due to a secular decline in premise-based equipment. In other words, people aren't buying any more IP telephony systems. Uh, but they're replacing it with sales in their cloud offerings. Uh, cloud-based VoIP? Is that what yes. Uh-huh. Well, that's true. A lot of people are saying, why would I actually have a PABX system on site? Why don't I just connect my IP phones directly to an external data center, in mm-hmm. the car- often inside of a carrier, so the carrier can offer you and manage PABX. Mm-hmm. Cisco has a product called HCS, which they're ra- you know running around the countryside trying to get people to buy as they try and offset declines in IP telephony. I don't – big for intercloud customers, I think. Mm-hmm. But uh, death to IP telephony, I say. <laughs> Just give everyone a mobile phone. <laughs> I thought it's interesting. I just thought other people are obviously – it's a validation of what I've been saying for a while, I think. And um, Validation I, is always nice. It is always nice, yes. And I would like to gloat quietly or less quietly in this case. Um, <laughs> or actively and loudly. That's right. I think what we're finally seeing is that people are giving up on telephony and shifting to text-based messaging of some sort, be it email or text messaging or more effective asynchronous communication methods. You don't need to be on a phone. In fact, being on a phone call is kind of a time waste in a lot of cases. But. Sometimes, I mean, I definitely think the generation coming up, I, I see this in my own kids, uh, using the phone to actually call someone for them is sort of like, what? Why, why would I do that? Uh, so asynchronous communication definitely is is going to be the way going forward. It's much more time efficient. How often do you actually need to talk to somebody, or could it? Um, I, I still think there's a role for actually speaking to someone because there are nuances that you miss in in text-based asynchronous yes. communication. But um, it's it's not it's, it's really I mean it's not the primary way I prefer to communicate. Hmm. Um, and I, this also may mean that video conferencing never takes off, even though we've been told that, you know, this year's the year. Um, and I've always thought that was ridiculous. But <laughs> Yes, that's true. Video conferencing. Although, um, I mean, I you take some... all the things that are intrusive about voice and then add a picture to it. It's like, <laughs> yeah, the video conference 30. It always takes 30 minutes to get the video conferencing going. Well, there's that too. <laughs> um, I, I, although there is some growth in video conferencing, Cisco's video conferencing BU had some nice growth. They had a few percent. When I say nice, I mean they had some growth as opposed to most things, which are shrinking. So who knows? Maybe it was just got lucky. One deal in a quarter got lucky, a good-sized deal. Can make all the difference. Could be, yes. Could be. I mean, and again, as with voice, there are use cases where video makes sense, but in general, No. Uh, big congratulations to Cisco ACI this week for missing their promised ship date. Uh, in November last year, they promised that, uh, and I've got a link to the blog post from Frank Palumbo at Cisco, committing to shipping the product in Q2 2014. And by my reckoning, at the 2nd of July, as we record this, they've missed their ship date. Is that good news or bad news, do you think? Um, I, I don't think it's necessarily terrible news. Vendors always announce a ship date, and it's sort of a, this is what we're working toward, and it's a way to give potential customers an idea of when they can maybe expect something. Um, 
it's it's not necessarily great because Cisco's put a lot of effort behind ACI and that it's an important new rollout for them. So I'm sure they'd want everything to fire on all cylinders, but, but you know, I don't think it's. Well, I'm hopeful that it means that they're taking quality seriously. So there's definitely that aspect. Yes. Yeah. Um, in the past, Cisco software has been, you know, ability to deliver a quality software product has been um, usually laughed about in bars over beers as comedy. Um, <laughs> they're showing some signs of getting better. So in the last year, their um, Cisco Prime has shown much promise, much more stability, although it's still very difficult to live with and to upgrade and things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Big organizations that have to keep one eye on the market and one eye on customers, and by the market I mean Wall Street, um, so they feel like we've got to stick a date to this uh, just so uh, Wall Street has something to hang their hats on. But I I'd, I'd, would rather have them take an extra couple of weeks, an extra couple of months to actually get the software right instead of hit some you know random arbitrary date. Yes, I agree. But you know, considering that Cisco ACI was originally rumored to be launched early last year, and then middle of the year, and then later in the year, and then finally in November we had a very uh, a launch thing that showed no product and no demo, and it's now July 2014, and we still have nothing. So, well, the stakes are high on this rollout, so I'm sure mm. the last thing they want is to start shipping product that has a lot of bugs, has a lot of problems. That it's got to come out clean. Mm. Well, speaking of people pissing me off, Extreme Networks, uh, somebody brought me to my attention this week that Extreme Networks have decided that if you use an unapproved third-party 40-gig or 100-gig optic in their switches, uh -huh. uh, if you, with, you have 90 days within which to go and purchase a feature pack, a.k.a. a license, a.k.a. pay their money, or it will rate limit the interface to 25% of the line rate. This is a new and wholly unwelcome development in the software licensing um, debate that we've been having for the last three or four years. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, what is the rationale for that? I mean, other than they want some money? Well, there is no rationale. I found it in the, de in the technical documentation. Um, basically, I suspect, I think I said this before in previous shows, is that SFPs include a port license fee. Mm -hmm. And the idea is, is that you'd pay, you know, you were all finding that the switches are actually reasonably cheap. So I think Cisco might have started this by discounting the switch but increasing the price of the SFPs. Mm -hmm. And quite often when you buy the switch, you only buy, you know, four or six or eight SFPs to plug in a couple of servers and away you go. And so you're sort of hiding the full price of the switch. You're making the physical unit look cheap, but the price of the SFPs is inflated to make the full value that the vendor wants. And no doubt they're taking the opportunity to gouge customers at the same time Nothing like a 95% margin on SFPs. Uh, <laughs> I was talking to uh, somebody this week, and they said that they believe that Cisco is making over $2 billion a year revenue in SFP modules. Wow. Uh, which is a significant chunk of their income. Yes. Uh, and apparently the profit margin that is well over 90%, towards 95%. Hmm. So, you know, nice business if you can convince customers it's a thing, but actually going into the boxes and rate limiting, unless they profess buy a port licenses, effectively buy a license per port, is um, sort of making it clear that you're actually paying a license fee. You pay a, a fee to buy the switch, the physical switch, and then the vendors expect you to pay per port for each port that you use. Mm -hmm. And you can either buy the license built into the SFP, which is supposedly certified and specially blessed with virginal um, luck dragon tears, or you can go and buy an OEM and you still have to pay up. <laughs> I imagine that there's a lot of people out there fairly enraged 
um, and whether they'll live with it or not, I don't know. But uh, vendors should just be honest. If they want to hide the price of something this way, why not just come up to people and say, look, there's a purport license fee. We expect you to pay for it like this. Why try and stick it to customers, I think? Especially for a company like Extreme, which you know has you know maintained its place in the market pretty well, but is still a smaller player and it seems like it should want to do everything it can to distinguish itself from incumbents who have a history of you know mm. gouging the customer. Yeah, I guess in one way they're blessing OEM SFPs, so go and buy them by all means, but pay us <laughs> but, a license fee per port. But we port. get a cut. <laughs> yeah, but we want a cut. You know, part of our pricing is that we have a per port license fee. Well, you know, stand up and say that. Sure. Um, but you know, and then you have ninety days, which is a fairly generous license period. But still, <laughs> that's it's uh, unexpected. It's not something that's been done before today. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. I wonder if do you think the market will bear it? Um, probably. I think so. I mean, I think you don't believe in white box, do you? Ah, uh, <laughs> I, I think. Once you've got it in and racked and running, it, you know, there's the principled outrage you might feel, and then there's the I've got stuff to do, so uh, somebody write the check and let's just get on with it. And yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's the thinking behind it. I mean, mm-hmm. the customers of all stripes um, will often just uh, pony up as opposed to inconvenience themselves. Yeah. And it's an unfortunate tendency, but there it is. Yeah. Oh, well, I guess it's up to customers to realize what's happening to them. Uh, finally, uh, we very quickly touch on uh, the big, big hoo-ha in the news this week about Facebook's secret mood manipulation experiment. This is your thing. <laughs> this was my thing. Um, this jumped out at me because my wife is in academia and I see all of the institutional hoops she has to jump through uh, just to you know, do um, fairly innocuous interviews of folks to do her research. Um, so I, I, I was just very puzzled that uh, an institutional review board would sort of sign off on uh, actually letting Facebook mess around with people's emotional states so callously. Did they actually sign off? Uh, did yes, they did. they did. Yes, yes, they did. Maybe your wife's just not using the right T's and C's. <laughs> what T's and C's? Well, uh, Facebook pointed to their terms and conditions and says, you know, it's part of our when you sign up for Facebook. Well, you that's, give us permission, right? So your yes. wife is obviously not using the right T's and C's. She right. should take Facebooks and then, you know, once <laughs> once she's got you once, she's got you for the next 50 years. Well, that's the argument we were having because, you know, if she needs to get consent from someone, it's a very clear form that says, I am getting your consent to participate in this research. It's it's not buried in a very long, yeah. uh, you know, terms of service condition that nobody actually reads anyway. And, yeah. Um, the secret, as far as I'm concerned, Facebook is not something that any any – competent human should be using (laughs) it's pretty straightforward Uh, um, it's just you know to me the sort of things that they're doing with your data and your they're already manipulating your mood like um, as a as somebody who has a blog and I try to promote my blog on Facebook Mm -hmm. um, I can go and see that one every time I post something to Facebook some days 30 people will see it and some days 400 people will see it Mm-hmm. And there's no rhyme or reason. Facebook's already controlling what you see in Facebook. So if you subscribe to follow my Facebook page, for example, which is Ethereal Mind, you can just go and search it up if you're that way inclined. I don't recommend that you do, but hey, it's up here. <laughs> you know, if you want to be dumb, go right ahead. Um, but what will happen is one post will show up to 20, 30, 40 people, and another post will show up to 100, 300, 500. It 
with no discernible pattern. So Facebook is already controlling that. Sure, I know Facebook already messes with people's feeds, but this, you know, they actually set out to see if they could get a statistically significant uh, change in people's moods, and that seems a little bit, which they did. Yeah, a little bit more sinister than just trying to get people to click hmm. on more stuff. What happens if uh, Facebook comes out in support of George Bush for president? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> the, the unintended consequence here, and we'll see, because again, this goes back to what what consumers are willing to put up with. I mean, Facebook seems like aggressively trying to drive away as many people as they can with all of the privacy issues that keep coming out and now stuff like this. Um, and yet, they still got a lot of users. So, I don't know. Yeah. Seems weird to me. I I won't use Facebook for anything. The only thing I have a page there for is to put my stuff there so people can find me. But I wouldn't, you know, this is why I prefer Twitter is at least... You know, if I you anybody I follow, I see whatever they say. They don't filter it out. Yes. And if I don't want to listen to you, well, I'll stop listening to you. And if I, you know, I chose to listen, so I'm I'm seeing what that people that I follow, which is just a few, then I'm going to see that stuff, right? I don't yeah. see why Twitter should filter that for me. Absolutely. And um, I this is why I also don't use LinkedIn for the same reason. LinkedIn filters decides who gets to see your content for the same reason. And it's far more egregious, in fact. LinkedIn will not only um, filter what you see, they'll also take all of those relationships that you have and import all of your email address, build a map of you, and then they actually sell that data off to other people. So the connectivity mm -hmm. that you espouse on LinkedIn through all the people that you know is sold off to other companies to try and target you. Uh, not just for advertising, but also for credit checks and a range of other stuff. Sure. Um, so having a LinkedIn account is a very dangerous thing. And uh, I strongly recommend that if you do have a LinkedIn account, you should always log out of it when you leave. And uh, don't put too much in there because they are going to sell it off. <laughs> yeah, uh, I definitely feel like I've pulled way back uh, on my social media presence. Yeah, over the last couple of years because of these kinds of issues. It doesn't seem to end either. It, it really doesn't. And I, I, part of it may also be this uh, – another comment that my son made when my wife and I were talking about this issue was, who has a Facebook account? Um, which I'm sure is a dagger in the heart of Mark Zuckerberg um, that there's a whole generation they're just not going to capture. So, uh, But it, you know, it also seems like they're actively trying to drive away folks who care about <laughs> privacy and propriety. Yeah, it's um, oh, you know, whatever. Yeah, what are we going to do, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and who's listening to us? I mean, I've done whatever I can to minimise. I like Twitter <laughs> because it doesn't do any of this filtering. It lets, you know, yes. and it's pretty straightforward and simple, and it does what it says on the tin. And I'm mm -hmm. sure they're trying to do some exploitation. You know, I'm sure they are because I haven't paid Twitter a dime. No, but they're also not trying to. You know, they've got a highly valuable company, but they're also not trying to build. You know, Facebook with a $20 billion valuation or whatever it is this week um, needs to return an awful lot of money to its so-called shareholders. So it needs to do anything to try and meet that demand from the market, whereas yes. Twitter seems to – it doesn't take much to build Twitter. And it's fairly simple, so their requirements are slightly different, I think, and so far still aligned with actually being nice to people. I hope but, so. I yeah. hope it stays that way. Well, I uh, I think there's not much been happening this week, so and my coffee's nearly done. What about you? I'm ready for another cup. 
You are. So anything exciting happening for you this week? Uh, not too much, but you're always welcome to visit me at uh, informationweek.com slash And I'm Greg Farrow. I will be spending next week in London. If you see me around, say hi. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and uh, I will have to set up the recording for next week accordingly, but you, in the meantime, you can find me on my blog at etherealmind.com and also on the Twitter as at etherealmind. That's it for the coffee break this week. Uh, please feel free to head over to Packet Pushers to see the show notes and follow the links, and also to leave comments on today's blog post. And if you want to send us an email and give us some suggestions for the show or provide us with some feedback, send an email to packetpushers at gmail.com and let us know what you're thinking. See you next week.